0: Hello and welcome to the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Thorne. By the end of May, around 80% of the 2023 American lamb crop will already be on the ground. It is safe to say, for many, we are in full-fledged lambing season. While it may be tough to look beyond the extra work and excitement that usually comes with the arrival of a new generation, it is also our first chance to gauge the breeding decisions we made last fall. Did we use the right rams? How will this year's crop compare to years past? Which ones will be the best replacements? Making the right genetic selection decisions is critical in sheep production, but this can be challenging because the impacts of our decisions today may take years to be realized. Luckily, technology to help in this process is constantly being developed and refined, resulting in tools such as estimated breeding values from the National Sheep Improvement Program, which can give us a clearer picture of an animal's genetic merit for a plethora of traits. Here with me today to overview this technology and the ongoing research being conducted to improve EVVs is Dr. Ron Lewis, who is a professor of animal breeding and genomics from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and the Technical Committee Chair for NSIP. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Lewis.
1: Jake, thanks for that introduction. Um, the topics that we're going to visit about today is one I have tremendous passion for, and I look forward to our dialogue to visit about some of the ideas about quantitative genetic selection and a bit about sheep and NSIP.
0: Uh, now, we're fortunate to have you back on the podcast for a second time, uh, but it's been a little while uh Dr. Lewis uh, before we get going into the topic can you remind our audience uh, a bit about your background and your involvement in the US sheep industry?
1: Be happy to. Um was raised in California um many many moons ago and uh, I guess one of the things that was a real introduction to my engagement in the the industry there is the way I ended up paying for my Part of my university time at UC Davis, as I was uh, the shepherd at the UC Davis sheep unit, and so I literally lived in the barn and looked after lambing year-round. So that was a, a part of my introduction to what the U.S. industry is all about. Beyond some things earlier in my life, I then had the opportunity to actually shift to uh, the Texas agricultural system, spent some time in the same spot that you're at, Jake, in San Angelo for half a dozen years working with Marie Shelton, and I give him every credit for what I do today. He was a tremendous mentor and enthused me in everything about U.S. sheep and genetics in general. I then shifted uh, to complete my U.S. studies to Virginia Tech working with Dave Nauter on some ideas around an accelerated lambing system in collaboration with the star uh, flock there at Cornell University. And then probably the most fundamental learning I had the chance to engage in is I uh, shifted to Australia for a couple of years, working in Western Australia primarily with fine wool breeds. And then the opportunity allowed me to move to Edinburgh in Scotland where I spent well over a decade working with the U.K. sheep industry in a whole variety of breeds, both in a, a research and extension role. Um, oh, About 20 years ago, I was recruited back to the U.S., where I took a position at Virginia Tech, again working alongside uh, one of my key mentors, Dave Nauter. Spent about a decade there. Uh, working with a variety of species, including sheep, before coming to the University of Nebraska, Lincoln, now nearly 10 years ago. And about seven years ago, I think that's the right time frame, is when I became the chair of the NSIP Technical Committee, which allowed me to become much more intimately involved with some of our seed stock producers here in the U.S. Perhaps the one thing I forgot to say is the most important thing I did in Scotland is I met and I married my dear wife, and that is the most positive thing I could ever imagine doing, although perhaps it's not a lot about sheep breeding.
0: Hopefully she hears this podcast.
1: That would be wonderful. I'll earn some extra points. There you go.
0: Now, Dr. Lewis, uh, given uh, your uh, immense experience, both in the U.S. and internationally, in some of the major sheep production regions of the world, can you give us maybe like a a past Present and future description uh, of quantitative genetic selection, either in the U.S. or or around the world. Uh, in, in other words, you know, somewhat of a, a brief summary of, of what were some early efforts, uh, and early is a broad term. Uh, and then, you know, what technology are we currently using, and where do you see us going in the future? I like the
1: question uh, in part because I'm I'm a bit of a enthusiast of the history. Of our sheep industry and so to put where we are today in perspective to that journey we really need in my mind to step back nearly 11,000 years where sheep were first domesticated and many of you will know that happened in the upper Euphrates Basin and South West Asia which often is referred to as a fertile crescent and today that would be South Turkey, North Syria and And our modern sheep breeds evolved from the wild mouflon. And the reason sheep were one of the first domesticates is they had a whole whole variety of attributes that made them suited to domestication. Uh, They they weren't particularly aggressive, relatively social, moderate size, reach sexual maturity at a relatively early age, and they're relatively fecund. They produce a number of progeny at a given lambing event. And those are all really positive attributes. But if we think about that ancestor, that that mouflon was a hair sheep. And it really wasn't until about 8,000 years ago where we started to see the introduction of Selection based on dairying attributes and wool attributes. So we're moving from that mouflon to what our current breeds are that produce milk and um, and wool. And it was around five thousand five hundred years ago where textiling began. And what we need to to recognize is all of those changes from that original ancestor to the kinds of sheep that we see today was achieved through quantitative selection techniques. Shepherds were looking at their animals. They were figuring out which ones fitted their production system, recognizing that they impacted their next generation of animals. And this all preceded our understanding of inheritance. Mendel and Darwin, you know, their, their innovations, which we build on today were in the mid 1800s. And so, the history of selection goes on for millennia. And what we do today really builds on that history of what shepherds have been doing for, for many, many years in the past. Um, I'd probably be remiss not to mention Blakewell, Robert Blakewell, in that history. He came about in the mid-1700s, and he was really the inventor of our modern techniques of performance and pedigree recording and using that in selection decisions. So I think that history builds us up to the tools that we are now fine-tuning in our application of our quantitative selection techniques today.
0: Yeah, that's great. How has NSIP particularly evolved since? its inception, you know, a couple decades ago.
1: So NSIP uh, kicked off uh, in 1987 to give us a profile of time at Iowa State. And then in 2000, it shifted to Virginia Tech under the mentorship of Dave Nauter. And then it was in 2012 that that genetic evaluation shifted to a collaboration between LambPlan in Australia and NSIP here in the U.S., and that has been the home, if I may, of the NSIP evaluation um, ever since up through through today.
0: Okay. So what, from your perspective, what will the use of estimated breeding values allow breeders to accomplish?
1: The whole idea behind an estimated breeding value, is, I believe everyone will recognize, is when we see the way an animal performs, it's a combination of things. It's a combination of the genetics they inherited from their parents. But the way we manage them, our husbandry has an impact on what we measure on a given day. So what an estimated breeding value does is it tries to delineate, to separate out that part of the performance that we see that is inherited and therefore passed on from generation to generation to that which reflects our husbandry. So if we want to make change over the longer time frame, we need to pull out the genetic bit. And that's what the EBV does for the traits that make economic relevance to our program. And by using them in our selection decisions, we can make cumulative and permanent Change in the performance of our flocks,
0: okay, so in many ways, the sheep industry has been a bit slower to uh, adopt uh, this technology or, or this genetic selection uh, method uh, than other species. Why is that
1: It's a great question and one that is, is a little challenging to answer, but I'll, I'll give it my best. We have to recognize when we think about um The value of an animal, and we think about sheep compared to beef cattle, the value of an individual is clearly very much less within all of our small ruminants than it is within some of the larger ruminants. And so, given that, when we think about the cost of recording and utilizing performance data, that cost comparatively is a bit higher. And that is a a clear impediment, I think that's a fair word, to people wanting to engage in those technologies. Another part of it is unlike some of our vertically integrated species like chicken and pigs, where again, the value of an individual animal, it may be low, that integration across the entire industry means that selection decisions taken at the very top filter through to have huge impact throughout those industries. Within our sheep flocks, which are relatively small and are geographically located, some of that impact is certainly dispersed. But that investment in genetic improvement isn't impacting typically tens, of thousands of animals that are in commercial production. So there's a number of elements to our industry that do put up some barriers to uptake of genetic selection.
0: Sure. So so you mentioned beef cows and you mentioned poultry and and pork. Uh, Is there something that sheep producers or or sheep research can learn Uh, from these other species and the way that they started to adopt this technology that could help the sheep industry as we kind of go through those same steps that maybe they did years ago?
1: Absolutely. One of my favorite comments to make in front of a beef cattle audience Mm -hmm. is that our small ruminants benefit from all the mistakes they've made (laughs) over time in the application and use of these technologies. So I think we can. In a way, it's an advantage for us to benefit from the things that they've done right. Clearly, there are a lot. But also the things that have not been done quite as well. And and some of those have to do with the way genomic technologies have been introduced. And we can visit more about that now or later, whatever you prefer, Jake. Um, Because there are better ways to do it uh, than others. So let me stay with the genomics for the moment. Okay. It costs a a reasonable amount to collect genotype information on our animals. And we can get into those details a bit later on. So when we're investing those resources, because we have fixed amounts of money we can spend, we need to genotype the right animals. And when these tools were originally introduced, some of that decision-making about which animals were genotyped probably didn't fairly reflect the genetic diversity that were present in those herds. And that was a problem. And we're avoiding that in the techniques that we're employing today. The, the other element is we often focused on males yeah. and not genotyping the females in our herds and flocks. And the reality is these tools are most valuable for many of our maternal traits and the only way we can get a handle of that is to have performance records and genotypes on those females. So, in our introduction of those tools, I think we're doing a better job of reflecting the female half, if I may, of our breeding decisions. So, those are two examples of ways I think we've benefited from what other industries have done.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, yes, and we're going to dive a bit more into genomics here in a second. Um, But I thought of something as you're kind of talking about the development of NSIP and the way it's grown in the U.S. uh, that I want to ask real quick before we get to that. What, in your opinion, has been the most successful example so far of genetic progress that has been made using NSIP in the U.S. sheep industry?
1: Well, Jake, I'll, I'll uh answer that by using uh, an illustration from uh, an example I used about the value of these EBV in a class I was teaching just the other day to a, to a group of students and what it relates to is how these EBV for traits that are economically important can be combined into what we call a selection index to assist producers in making selection decisions and the illustration was in the Kitadin breed where in where breeding values are estimated breeding values that relate to uh, weaning weight and maternal weaning weight. so the dam's contribution to weaning weight, the number of lambs born and the number of lambs reared to the total pounds of lamb, weaned per-ewe lambing. And that's a pretty good economic trait. Clearly, Mm -hmm. we make money by marketing more lamb weight. And in that Katahdin breed, over the past decade, those are the data that we're looking at, the gain has been about a half a pound per year, which is pretty substantial if you think about it over time. And that's really a function of people believing that objective mattered increasing the total weight of lamb weaned, and then applying that in their selection decisions. And that's really one of the, the main role of NSIP. Everything else a bit more peripheral to that is providing breeding values, helping define breeding objectives, and combining them into a tool so we can actually use to take decisions. So I think that's a nice illustration of what NSIP has been able to achieve. And one breed, and there's examples in many of the other breeds as well that would follow line that
0: absolutely okay i do want to circle back to your comment on genomics and expand into that realm just a little bit uh, and so to provide some context in a question here uh, you and some colleagues are currently working on a project to generate more comprehensive breeding objectives for the sheep industry can you provide uh, an overview of the goals and the potential outcomes of that work?
1: Be happy to. It's an area that I'm very excited about and I'm particularly pleased by the engagement of the US sheep industry in that project. It's a mainstay of our ability to achieve our aims. So there's a lot of participating flocks, I'm I'm pleased to say. But what the goal of that project is and it's one of the supplementary roles of NSIP is to introduce additional traits into the breeding objectives that we set within our breeds. And these entail primarily maternal traits that affect the fitness of our use in our system. So, for example, utter health, parasite resistance, lamb survival, The longevity of the ewe changes in her weight and body condition over a production season, which basically tells us is she's doing the job she's supposed to be doing. And then ultimately, we hope to look at that relationship between the weight and size of our ewe's and their productive output. How many pounds of lamb do they weaned given their own weight, for instance, because there are costs, metabolic costs, to maintaining a u flock. So the whole project is about developing some additional breeding, some additional traits that we can then build into our breeding objectives that, to, that make it much more holistic. Now, where does genomics apply in this case? A lot of those traits are challenging to measure. They tend to be more lowly heritable, particularly lamb survival, which is one of the ones we're interested in. They're more challenging to measure. Think about it. If if we're only looking at these maternal traits, they're not expressed in directly in males. They're only in our ewes. And they're not really expressed until they're already in production. And that delays our ability to evaluate them well. It just takes more time. What genomics allows us to do is to take information that's being accumulated on ancestors and on uh, what I call collateral relatives, in this case sisters, to estimate breeding values in our younger animals earlier and, most importantly, more accurately. So it allows us to think about these maternal traits early in our selection programs to basically change the face of our flocks to make them more efficient and productive, and to guard the welfare of the animals in in our enterprises, which is increasingly a social priority in what we do in our livestock industries.
0: Okay can you explain what a a genomic estimated breeding value is and and how does it differ from our traditional definition of an EBD? Okay.
1: In both cases, they are still an estimated breeding value. What a producer is going to see is a number... It's going to be plus or minus. That is our best, most accurate evaluation of the genetic merit of that animal for whatever trait we're interested in. So the bottom line, it's, it's the the goal is the same, to do a, our best job of estimating an animal's genetic worth. What genomics does, it allows us to incorporate information at the genome level, looking at individual... Loci that reflect alleles that impact at a very fundamental way the genetic performance we see in our animals. And in the product that we're currently use, basically we're looking at 50,000 individual markers that tell us something about the genetic value of an animal. So we're combining that information at the genome level with what we currently collect based on pedigree and performance data. And let me emphasize, we will always need to continue to collect that performance data. We need to place the genomic information in the context of how our animals are actually performing. And so it's essential to have that link. And so, but what that genomic information does, it allows us to incorporate more information earlier on because we can look at the genome of an animal even be- almost before it's born and incorporate that in the way that we go about estimating breeding values. So perhaps a, a bottom-line way, bottom way to think about it, it's just a, a, a very accurate additional source of information that we can combine as we estimate breeding values. Another bit of it that's really key, I think, in our sheep population is that think about a set of full sibs. Hit the ground. We have no performance data on them at all as of yet. We may know something about their siren dam, and we can use that to predict their breeding value. But I guarantee, without genomics our estimate of the breeding value before those animals have performance records is going to be exactly the same. We can't tell them apart. We're averaging the information from their parents. But with the addition of genomic information, we can actually look at them at their own allelic level, at their own genomic level. So right from birth, we can begin to delineate our expectation of their genetic merit between those full sibs, even before they ever actually create a performance record. And being able to do that, I think, is going to be one of the major advantages of these tools within our SHEEP systems.
0: Okay, yeah, that's an excellent explanation there. One of the things that I think is really cool about this work that you've described is that every step of the way, you've had very close industry involvement uh, from flocks producers uh, that are interested in in being a part of this research. What has been the response so far from uh, those flocks, or even just the industry at large, to some of the recent stuff that you uh, conducted through research and and some of your early findings?
1: Now, I'll have to admit I'm biased because, you know, I'm excited about what we're doing. I think Overall, it's been extremely positive. There's a huge enthusiasm about incorporating these modern molecular tools into what we do in our sheep breeding programs. Um, And we were able to introduce genomically enhanced estimated breeding values back late in 2021 in, in one of our breeds. And that was met with a tremendous amount of enthusiasm. Uh, So I think there there's excitement about the opportunities these tools will offer us. The other part of the story, though, is beyond using the molecular data to do a better job of estimating breeding values, it also is offering these participants two other key outputs. And it's doing that from the get-go. The genomic enhanced estimated breeding values, it's going to take a little while before those can be released. And there's some reasons for that. But from the get-go and incorporating some of the genomic data into their into their recording, we're able to do a better job of verifying pedigree. We all know that can be pretty tough sometimes in a lambing barn at night with prolific ewes is really figuring out who belongs to who. Genomics help us do a better job of that. And secondly, we're able to generate what we call genetic conditions. Examples of that would be genotypes for characteristics like ovine progressive pneumonia and scrapie susceptibilities. And those data are coming directly back to producers engaged in this work right away to take advantage of within their breeding programs now, not only into the future. I think all of those opportunities are creating excitement and hopefully will encourage continued engagement in what we're trying to do.
0: That's great to hear. So in your response to the, the previous question, uh, one of the last things you mentioned was about kind of uh, you know early on in life, sometimes it's hard to determine uh, just how accurate an estimated breeding value is of a, of a lamb until there are some production records that start to be collected. And that GEBB maybe helps uh, increase that accuracy from an early age. Can you expand on that just a little? The way I look at accuracy,
1: it's all about counting stuff up, bottom line. The more counts we have, that is, the more information we have about an animal, either based on its own record, and if we think about fleece traits, repeated records on the animal itself, based on its ancestors, based on its progeny, the more counts we have, the more information we're able to incorporate, and the more accurate will be our breeding values. So it's really a a numbers game. What genomics offers is a lot more counts, effectively. And by doing so, we're able to be more accurate in discerning that genetic bit from all of our management, husbandry, environmental bit. Now, the advantage of adding in genomics up and above our current technologies is very trait-specific. We tend to see more of an advantage for those more lowly heritable traits. We also see more of an advantage in our younger animals that yet to have accumulated much performance data on themselves. So it's really a little bit, bit trait-specific as to the, to the benefit, but we've seen advantages in these young animals of as much as 1.8 times increase in in accuracy, when we incorporate it in, probably a better ballpark is going to be somewhere between 30 to 40 percent improvement as we incorporate the genomic data into the evaluation of our traits. But again, it depends on the trait, depends on how much we already know. So, contrary example, we have a RAM that's been used a bunch. Genomics doesn't help us evaluate him very much anymore because we already know a lot about him. We've got a lot of counts. It's really going to be those young animals that are going to benefit the most.
0: Okay. Now, something uh, when we talk about comparisons between animals, uh, maybe within a breed that have EBVs for a specific trait. Uh, you know, we've talked about accuracy. How does genetic linkage, particularly linkage between different flocks or or animals that are located on different sides of the country or whatnot, how does genetic linkage come into that equation?
1: They're essential, bottom line. To try to delineate accuracy from linkage... Uh, Let me give just a wee example. Accuracy is all about counts, as I've explained. Connectedness or genetic linkages is also all about counts. But the difference with linkages is it depends on where those counts arise from. So if you think about our production systems, there are individual flocks spread across the country with different climates and different husbandry practices. And again, our bottom line as a reminder is to separate the genetic stuff from all of that environmental stuff. Now, for us to fairly compare animals that are in these different locations, in these different flocks, they need to be genetically linked together in order to discern the environmental stuff well from the genetic stuff. Otherwise, there's a risk that when we're comparing flocks, if they're not genetically related, that what we're actually struggling with is confounding the husbandry in a flock in that evaluation with the ability to directly compare their genetic differences. Only through connections, which is basically meaning And the bottom line, rams are having progeny in multiple flocks. Are we able to really discern how those flocks differ genetically versus in terms of how they perform, generally speaking? So linkages is all about the accuracy, I'll use that term, of comparing breeding values of a pair of animals, which is really what we use when we take selection decisions, in different environments in different flocks. So we need accurate evaluations and we need genetic linkages to strengthen our ability to compare animals that were raised in different settings.
0: Okay. Now, our our EDB from NSIP, are they able to make across-breed comparisons? Uh, two, Two animals, two different breeds, are those EBV profiles comparable?
1: They are not. Um, basically, the breeding values are evaluated, they're obtained within a breed. And so we cannot use EBV in one breed to directly compare its merit genetically to another breed. In order to do that, what we actually need is crossbred progeny created by mating those pair of breeds, and through that link, through those crossbreeds, then with a fair bit of finesse, we can begin to develop tools to compare genetic merit of different breeds to one another. But at the moment, that is certainly not in place in what we're able to offer within at least the U.S. industry, nor in many others. It, it, it's, a, it's a more challenging task, if I may.
0: Sure. I, I recognize that you know there's uh, a lot of work that needs to be done. Do you see a future where the crossbred evaluations are potentially available?
1: Well, I'm pleased to say we are working at it. Uh, I have a very okay. talented uh, uh, student who is focused in on trying to think about the technologies needed to do that correctly. We would hate to compare them incorrectly. Uh, But at the end of the day, for this to really work out, I think we need to move towards systematic crossbreeding programs that are ongoing with those data being submitted in the correct way through NSIP to incorporate into the genetic evaluation. So it's not only developing the tools, and we've made a fair bit of progress in that, but it would really involve the industry saying, this is important. We're going to develop crossbreeding systems that provide the data to allow us to apply them in practice. And and to me, that's a major, a major step that would need to be taken. Okay.
0: So moving on just a little bit, what is the best strategy, in your opinion, for producers who wish to select for multiple traits at once? You brought up earlier the index uh, um, you know the index values and and e b b that are available uh, can we expand on that just a little bit even if you know even if the traits that are involved in those indexes if they're antagonistic to one another uh you know how, how does all that work
1: right great question, and those antagonisms are one of the reasons indexes becomes so very important so the bottom line on an index is us trying to figure out as simply as we can. The best animal for us to predict, to pick for our production system. That's the goal. And so the, the starting point, and it's one I don't think we spend enough time on, is really what is our breeding objective? Where do we want to see ourselves in five or ten years? Is it all about wool? Is it a combination of wool and weight gain? Is it a combination of wool, weight gain, and parasite resistance? Is it a combination of wool, weight, parasite resistance, and some of these other maternal traits I mentioned earlier? And so the starting point and what we really need to invest effort in is looking in that crystal ball to say where do we want to be five, ten years down the road. And that involves a lot of back and forth with industry and perhaps people like me, some of the technical skills to then incorporate that into the design of an index. So that's key. That's the first thing we need to do. Once we do that in the putting together these indexes, we need to figure out what we're going to measure. And they need to be pragmatic, backing up to the project that you asked me about before, Jake. We're doing a lot more detailed measurement of some of these traits at collaborative USDA facilities in order to truly understand them at the biological level. But never, never would we anticipate that each individual farmer collects that whole plethora of traits. It's just too much work. And so we need to figure out what we can measure which are pretty good predictors of where we want to go. So that's a second key thing. We call those our selection criteria. So we set our objective, we figure out what to measure. The third part of the story is once we decide that, we need to look at the relationships. And by that, I mean the genetic and phenotypic relationships, which we boil down into our heritabilities and our correlations. Among the things we measure and the traits we want to improve. And that's what we do as part of genetic evaluation. And then the last part of the story, the fourth part of the story, is we need to figure out what their economic worth is. We don't want to focus our selection programs on defining that best animal if it isn't being based on things that, bottom line, earn producers' money. So we need to think about input costs, which does include the labor of collecting measurements, and output benefits, the revenues that are earned, when we pull all the bits together to design that economic index. But the bottom line is to come up with a single score, combining all the elements of the breeding objective Mm -hmm. to allow producers to use that one measure to figure out uh, that the best animal that fits my particular enterprise
0: sure would you mind giving us uh, just a couple of examples of some indexes that are available through nsip for for any any breed
1: so i, I mentioned the an index that was being used in the cot catad and that was the that's the us hare sheep index and that combines weights at weaning time and reproductive rate interesting part of that and it caused uh A bit of a stir, a little time to understand, is in that index, there is actually a negative weighting placed on number of lambs born and a positive weighting placed on number of lambs weaned. And the reason for that, if we think about our best animal, we don't want a ewe that can produce a whole bunch of lambs that she's not able to actually rear because bottom line, we earn the money by marketing weaned lambs. And so that balance in that index is intended to have prolific enough use, so they have large enough litter size, but they raise them. So that's one illustration of an index. Uh, Another is the uh, range Sheep Index, the Western Index, again, it has a huge focus on uh, reproductive success. It builds in weight traits, but it also incorporates some of the wool traits because clearly part of the output of our fine wool breeds would be the amount of wool and the fiber diameter of the wool that they actually produce and are able to market.
0: Okay, Dr. Lewis, whether we're talking about... uh, indexes genomic estimated breeding values or traditional estimated breeding values what is needed kind of behind the scenes to maintain the accuracy of those values or evvs as breeds evolve over time
1: well jake i think the the key element, and I in a way referred to this when I was giving an outline of domestication and taking this up to the modern day with our selection tools, is what those original shepherds did. They took time to look at and evaluate and in some way record the performance of their animals. And collecting that and pedigree data is key to the accuracy of our EBVs. It's all based on having information to work with. So fundamental to the accuracy of what we're able to provide is people continuing to record the performance of their animals within their production systems. And so to me, that's the most fundamental thing that we need to do. To complement that, there are some things about other things behind, more behind the scene. One is our breeds are changing. So we need to account for changes in the relationships, the heritabilities and genetic and phenotypic correlations among the traits that we're evaluating. And I also spent some time talking about the need in estimating breeding values to separate the genetic component from everything else, the husbandry, the environment. And so we need to reevaluate the way we're trying to explain, trying to remove in a way the noise those environmental factors introduce to our predictions. And some of those things are thinking about, you know, the Im- the impact of the age of the animal on performance, whether they're a male or female, how old the dam is, birth and rearing type, all of those we plug into this environmental component and we need to adjust or account for that when we estimate breeding values. And so those are key behind the thing, behind the scene items that we need to continually reevaluate.
0: Okay. What are some of the costs that are associated with some of this advanced genetic selection stuff.
1: Well, I'm going to refer back to NSIP in this case because those are the figures that I have most at hand and feel that I can I can try to share. So I was looking back at some of the enrollment and what are called data fee costs. So when somebody joins in NSIP for a year, they pay a, a an amount that is based on largely on the number of breeding ewes they have in their flock. And then they pay a, a fee for each lamb, basically, that is being evaluated on which data are being recorded. So I used as an illustration in my mind a, a flock that had, say, 70 breeding ewes and a hundred lambs that are being recorded and submitted through this NSIP pipeline. So in that illustration, I chose 70 because that's kind of hitting the the norm for a lot of the flocks that are part of that system. It would cost per year as fees for getting those breeding values back, uh, For my calculations, $625 per year. And that's going to v- clearly vary, you know, depending bed- on flock size and the amount of recording. But you know, six to seven hundred dollars is probably not a bad ballpark. Now, what that does not include, just to be clear, is the labor involved in collecting those records. I always find that hard to put a hard number on because it really depends on how a producer thinks about their labor costs, and that's going to vary from one flock to another. Now, if you bring in genomics, clearly there are some additional costs because there would be uh, the cost of collecting a DNA sample, submitting it for genotyping, and then incorporating those data into the genetic evaluation. And so that would be up and on top of what the basic cost is for submitting data.
0: Okay. So given some of these costs, uh, you know, what type of of sheep operation does this technology really make the most sense for, in your opinion?
1: I think it really fits into what I call our seed stock producers. So those are folks that are sort of, if I may, the, the top of our breeding pyramid. And they're the ones who are generating genetic change that then, perforates or penetrates through the remainder of the industry. And so it's really those typically purebred, but it could be some crossbred flocks that are producing the breeding animals, particularly rams but ewes, that filter down through our commercial operations to create at the end of the line, the foods and fibers that we market to our, to our customers. So it's that, it's that nucleus component of our breeds in our industry.
0: So, Dr. Lewis, we're getting near the end of our time here. As we start to to wrap up, uh, what would you like to leave our audience with uh, in regard to the importance of genetic selection in general?
1: First and foremost, it works. You know, if we collect the information we need and we evaluate it in a sensible way, we are guaranteed to be able to achieve change. I mean, it does depend on using the information, obviously, but if we do so, we can achieve permanent, cumulative, and from most evaluations that we do, actually rather cost-effective improvement in the performance of our flocks. And so it's a well-tested and demonstrated tool that is key to making change. So if there was a message that I could Provide it is to encourage more uptake of these technologies. I was doing some back of the envelope calculations the other day, and from my best guess, it's probably less than 2% of our operations that are actually engaged in performance recording. So there's tremendous opportunity by increased involvement to take full advantages of these tools and incorporate them into what we do in our commercial operations. And and I think part of the, maybe the right word is pressure. To make this happen needs to be what I call bottom-up. Commercial producers need to go to their seed stock providers and say, I really do need to know more about the genetic merit of the animals that I'm going to, to purchase, And as part of that, be willing to pay for the effort that those seed stock producers are investing, because for them to do the work, they need to have a reliable, dependable source of support to go to the trouble. And so I think it needs to be that embrace from both ends of our industry to actually take full advantage of what we're doing.
0: Very wise words to to wrap up on there. I appreciate that. I'm really excited to to see the industry's use of this type of technology over the next decade uh, and kind of the eventual impacts of uh, the work that you've described as the industry moves forward. Uh, It was really neat to to hear uh, you describe some of that. Uh, So thanks for a great discussion. Uh, for sharing your research uh, and obviously sharing your insight, uh, very vast, broad knowledge uh, on sheep genetics today. Thanks for being on the podcast, Dr. Lewis.
1: Well, Jake, thanks very much for the opportunity. Clearly, this is something that I care dearly about, and I think there's huge opportunity for our industry, and I look forward to these things coming to fruition.
0: Yep. Uh, Listeners, as always, thanks for joining us uh, on your favorite platform, uh, I know it takes a little extra time, but if you've enjoyed this episode or any of our, our previous episodes, uh, I kindly ask you to please share it on your social media pages to help us broaden our reach uh, amongst our fellow shepherds and sheep enthusiasts alike. Uh, but until next time, remember, eat lamb, wool, and to paraphrase an ancient Chinese proverb, the best time to start using genetic technology was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. Have a good one.